Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems. Hold on and fight, follow your heart. This is your way, love is what you make of it. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Luciani, welcoming you to another session of self-coaching, where real-life emotional struggle, whether it's depression, anxiety, relationship conflict, losing weight, or simply handling life's challenges are all addressed. Teaching you to become your own best coach. Well, greetings. And today I thought I was going to talk a little bit about stress. Everyone knows stress, right? We live in rather stressful times. We've been through and are going through stressful times. And what is stress? Well, it's, it's both a mind-body reaction to feeling threatened, to feeling vulnerable, to feeling insecure. And we try to compensate, you know, the most ubiquitous way is through worrying, which generates more stress. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about stress, maybe just fortifying you with a better attitude toward handling and mitigating the stress in your life. And if you've listened to any of my previous podcasts, you know I, I talk about the bucket, the stress bucket. And I'd like you to just imagine a bucket for now. And in this bucket, we have our balancing chemicals, our balancing brain chemicals, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. And these are the, the chemicals that, that keep us emotionally stable. So what happens with stress? Well. Think of a, a punch that we punch holes in the bottom of the bucket. And what happens when you punch holes in the bottom of a bucket is whatever's in that bucket, the liquid, it begins to drip out. Now let's imagine that your bucket is filled with these balancing chemicals. And the punch that punches holes in these chemicals is stress. So the more stress you have, the more chemical depletion you have because your vital chemistry is now being depleted. Drip, drip, drip. Now a few holes, you know, by life's inevitable challenges and frustrations, they don't, they don't pose a, a significant problem. But if stress becomes chronic, you know, creating more and more holes poked in that bucket, in time, what's gonna happen? Well, your body won't be able to meet the demand. You know, when, when we are dealing with a normal amount of stress, because our bodies are capable of handling stress, a, a normal amount of stress, and we have what's called homeostatic mechanisms. Those are balancing mechanisms. So you're a little stressed today and stressed and stressed. Well, our, it's like healing, and, and our, our brain chemical, chemicals can reconstitute themselves and balance us. But when stress becomes chronic, well, then it's impossible. The depletion is going on faster than the restoration. And what happens is that you wind up in a depleted state. And when you wind up in a depleted state, yes, your chemistry now is imbalanced. This is why medication works. You know, it artificially slows down the absorption so that these chemicals can build up, artificially build up back to normal levels. So if your stress levels are high enough and chronic enough, 
you will ultimately reach a place of imbalance and you're going to feel imbalanced. Now, how does that manifest itself? Well, maybe in the form of depression, moodiness, anxiousness, worrisome. You know, so all of this is a result of being depleted. Now, everything that I refer to in terms of psychology is what I feel is relative. So it, it depends on the relative amount of depletion. You might feel a little anxious or a little depressed. And anxiety and depression itself, uh, emotional struggle itself, you know, think of it as a continuum. There is mild and there is severe, and then there is moderate in the middle. And for things to progress from mild, let's use, the, use anxiety for an example. To go from mild anxiety to moderate anxiety or to deeper states of anxiety requires feeding it with more stress. And this is what worry does. Worrisome ringing, as I said, the ringing of the hands and so what we're doing is we're, we're generating more stress, more self-doubt, more fear, more anxiety, more negativity. And it's another poke in the bottom of that bucket. And another, and another. So, so our chemistry begins to leak out faster than we can manage. And over time, we become more deeply anxious, more deeply frustrated with life. So, you know, so how do we generate stress? Now, you know, it's an important point. Someone might say, I worry about everything, getting sick, losing my job. I drive myself crazy. Why bother trying? Nothing makes me happy anymore. You see, when you become identified with destructive insecurity thinking, you're inadvertently creating a tainted version, not only of yourself, but of the world you live in. And that person that just told us that they worry about everything well, they're identified with their own insecurity. Very important point. When you become identified with insecurity, then the healthy, mature you is not accessible. Think of an automobile. What's behind the wheel is insecurity driving. Doubts, fears, negativity. You're in the back seat, passively in the back seat. Insecurity is driving, and insecurity is speaking louder than your mature self. So when you say, I worry about everything, you should be saying, my insecurity is worrying about everything. You see, because once you are identified with insecurity, you become your insecurity. So the person that worries about everything, they're identified with insecurity. And that's how their life proceeds, uninterrupted, going further and further into the debt of insecurity, the depletion of insecurity, and adding more and more stress. And as that continuum goes from mild to moderate, you suffer more. Now, let's say, for example, that a company has to lay off 10 of its workers. Eh, maybe four out of the 10 get a little anxious and panic. This is circumstantial anxiety. It's normal. You know, when life challenges us, and we've been through many challenges with this COVID, etc. When life challenges us, it's normal to feel a bit anxious or panicked. 
So in this layoff scenario where the workers are laid off, four may become a little anxious and panicked. Another four may wind up moderately depressed, you know, not wanting to get out of bed in the, in the morning and, you know, not communicating anymore with their spouse. And maybe there's another, uh, how many more do we have here? We have eight guys. And while two more of the 10 might not be bothered at all, remaining optimistic that something else will take place. You see, the point I'm making here is that losing your job doesn't make you get anxious or depressed. As Epictetus, a Greek slave in the second century turned philosopher put it, it's not what happens to you, but how you react to it that matters. And there is no truer statement than that. Life doesn't make you depressed, anxious. It, it may, I should qualify that. Life can give you a shot in the gut, no question about it. And maybe it'll knock us down, you know, but stumbling isn't falling. So life can cause us to stumble. But how we react to those challenges, how we react to the pitfalls in life, whether it be a loss of a job, a breakup of a relationship, illness. No one tells you how you have to react. Now, the optimist reacts differently than the pessimist. But if you have a more healthy response, if you frame things in a healthy way, if you have a bit of optimism and can look ahead with optimism, your presence is going to be qualitatively different than the pessimist. If I know something that's hurting me is never going to end, and my pessimism says, oh, this is going to go on forever. I'll never, ever feel good. I'll never find somebody else. I'll never have the life I, you know, if I have that pessimistic viewpoint, what do you think is going to happen to me in the moment? It's tainted. It's tarnished. So I'm going to suffer. Now, if, on the other hand, I have an optimistic view, you know, I'll handle what's coming. I'll get by. I'll figure it out. I've done it thousands of times in the past. Why not now? So the optimist lives a very different life in the present. And what's important is that the optimist generates either no stress or much less stress than the pessimist. So if you are not an optimist, I challenge you today to cultivate optimism. Now, how do you do that? Well, it's a leap of faith. You know, you just choose to be more. It may seem unnatural at first, but do you think it hurts you to say, hey, you know what? I'll figure that out. Or when that comes, I'll, I'll find a way. You know, it doesn't hurt to try to be more optimistic than to concede and be back in that back seat, letting insecurity drive to concede to pessimism where, oh, the world is going to end. It'll never be okay. That is a concession. And it is a choice, not an active choice, but a passive choice. That's very important, you see. Insecurity usually is embraced with passivity. And by that, what I mean is you being in the backseat of the car, insecurity driving, 
you kind of shut down that healthy, mature part of you and just allow insecurity to take over. You allow pessimism to rule and it becomes then what? A habit. You become habituated by your own pessimism. And, you know, on one level, you got to tell yourself, shame on me. You know, I'm doing nothing about this pessimism. I'm just whining, wringing my hands, feeling sorry for myself. And as long as you do that, well, what do you expect is going to happen? So optimism is something you have to reach for it, uh, if you're a pessimist. If you are pessimistic and you're not an optimist, you have to reach for it. You have to understand how important it is to cultivate that optimism. And again, neither pessimism or optimism controls the future. Neither one knows what's going to happen. But the reason I'm encouraging you from a self-coaching perspective to grapple with, to reach for optimism, is because it's going to provide you with the foundation to live your life correctly in the present by minimizing stress, by releasing you from the inclination toward anxiety, depression, and emotional struggle. And optimism is the fuel. It's the fuel of a healthy life. So coaching is about action. And one of the actions you could take today is to, when you find yourself slipping into that backseat of pessimistic kind of passivity, one thing you can do today is challenge yourself. What is the optimistic response to such and such? Ask yourself, define it. Let yourself find that healthy, mature part of your thinking and let the healthy, mature part of your thinking articulate. Well, what would be the healthy, optimistic response? Now, don't get me wrong. When I talk about optimism, I'm not talking about you know, Pollyanna, where everything's going to be wonderful and we're all going to be tiptoeing through the tulips. No, it's being realistic. But it's assuming, and, and this is so important, it's assuming that you have the wherewithal to get through, to thrive, to figure out, to solve. So, yeah, maybe it's not tulips that you're tiptoeing through. But you know what? You'll have many more positive days than negative days. And not only when you have negative days will you feel, you know, hammered and bummed out, but you'll also feel resourceful enough to handle it, to deal with it. So I can't stress enough how important optimism is. So back to stress. Maybe you feel you can't avoid stress. And again, there's circumstantial stress, you know, things that are stressful. But when it comes to emotional struggle, we're talking about not just reacting to circumstantial stress in a realistic way, in a pragmatic, proportionate way. I always use the term proportionate, disproportionate, it's the difference between neurotic and healthy. Proportionate reaction to stress is dealing with it in the context of what the challenge is and not extrapolating it. For example, you stub your toe and now I'm going to have, have my toe amputated. You know, so, so you extrapolate it to the irrational. And when you're doing that, of course, you're generating more stress than is necessary. Now, stress isn't ever necessary, but it is fundamentally a survival mechanism. 
certain things ought to stress us and we ought to attend to wounds and certain problems and stress kind of motivates us to take charge and do things that we have to do. It's the inappropriate, disproportionate, irrational stress that I'm referring to. And if you, if you want, I'll give you 1,400 reasons why you can't afford to ignore stress. Now, if you go back as far as I do, you might remember this song, I think it was 1969, War, What Is It Good For? Absolutely nothing. And that's how I feel about irrational, inordinate stress. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. And chronic stress will ultimately pave the way toward a life of emotional struggle. Now, I'm going to try to convince you here. You know, there's a structure in your brain. It's called the amygdala. And that's the fight-flight part of your brain, which becomes activated when we feel threatened. And that could be a real or imagined threat. I mean, if you imagine that tomorrow's going to bring catastrophic whatever, you can then get that amygdala firing. So the threat can be real or it can be imagined. And what happens is that the amygdala informs another part of your brain, the hypothalamus. And it tells the hypothalamus to start what's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal, the HPA response. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Your hypothalamus begins to mobilize your pituitary gland, which in turn triggers your adrenals to activate your sympathetic nervous system to release, now are you ready for this? 1,400 stress-related chemical reactions in your body. Oh man. So, you know, stress isn't innocuous. Your whole body reacts to stress. So when we talk about the bucket and the depletion, you know, this is why we get depleted. You know, we are you know, a mind-body. It's This is not just mental stuff. This is whole body stuff. So now let's, let's move on a little bit. Let's call this now mental mutiny. I mean, typically when we think of our thoughts, at least I know when I think of my thoughts, it seems like they have a life of their own. And especially someone with, say, anxiety, for example, or depression or just any struggle. I often hear from my patients, I just can't stop worrying. Do you think I want to feel this miserable? I try, but I can't. I just, I just keep thinking things are hopeless, right? Okay. You know, there's no, no question when it comes to emotional suffering. Well, we don't sit back and just decide, well, now it's time to suffer. Well, we don't do it consciously. Let me put it that way. So how can it be that our thoughts can turn against us? How they can torture us? And even worse, how can they even make us at times not want to live? So if you're going to understand this mental mutiny, I guess you need to understand that your thinking, especially the self-sabotaging thoughts, those insecurity-driven thoughts, they just don't occur in a vacuum. They are directly influenced by the unique combination of characteristics that form what we call your personality. Now, what do we mean when we say personality? Well, you might describe your personality as being hypersensitive, overly emotional, perhaps, pessimistic, optimistic. 
You may see yourself as worrisome or upbeat, introverted or extroverted. You know, whatever you're referring to when you describe your personality, what you're doing is you're really talking about a here and now snapshot of who you've become. And in this moment, you are the end result of all the developmental experiences, positive and negative, that have shaped you. And not only you, but also shaped your brain. Because your brain has the habit loops. We are habituated by the experiences we've had, the repetitive experiences, the interpretation of those experiences. But when it comes to understanding the sabotaging thoughts associated with emotional struggle, what you need to know is that these thoughts are the byproduct of insecurity. Again, you, you, you hear me just saying over and over and over, and, and maybe it's good that you keep hearing it, but it's insecurity-driven thinking that has shaped your personality. So whatever you define your personality to be at this moment, hypersensitive, emotional, pessimistic, worrisome, upbeat, et cetera, all of that is the end result of the shaping influences of insecurity. And they could be subtle, but over time, think of the Grand Canyon. That started with a little trickle of the Colorado River. And over the millions of years, we have a Grand Canyon. And this is what insecurity thinking does. In time, starting in our developmental years, we begin to become shaped and possibly eroded by the attempts to be safe. Insecurity makes us feel vulnerable and we try so hard to compensate. You know, we worry and we try to insulate ourselves and sometimes we become overly passive and we retreat and, you know, there's all kinds of ways we try to protect ourselves from insecurity. But over time, it shapes that personality. Another way to think of your personality is think of a stack of coins where each coin represents a life experience. So we're going to have many coins in this stack. And as your stack grows, if you add a bent coin or two or three or four or more, what happens? Well, the stack begins to tilt. Now, eventually, as more coins continue to be added to the already tilting stack, what do you think happens? The stack falls. So the bent coins represent the effects of insecurity. And these effects can result from early trauma, right? Separation, loss, illness, and so on. So the stack falling represents the onset of emotional struggle, of the onset of anxiety, depression. And since self-coaching is all about here and now problem solving, you know, it's not essential that we analyze every bent coin experience you've had. It doesn't matter whether your potty training was too strict or too lenient. What really matters and what only matters is that you restack the coins, ensuring that you don't allow insecurity to add any bent coins going forward. So what are the bent coins? Well, they are the current and chronic habits of insecurity-driven thinking. 
Now, there's three terms that will tip you off to insecurity-driven thinking. Doubts, fears, negatives. Now, these invariably embrace the essence of insecurity-driven thinking, and they sabotage you, these thoughts. They discourage you. They deplete you. And most importantly, they distort your natural and full potential. Now, when I say you're in the back seat and insecurity is driving, well, your potential is arrested. The passivity of letting insecurities, doubts, fears, and negatives drive and steer your life, well, that's not your potential. That's what thwarts your potential, and that's what minimizes your potential. So unless you learn to understand how you inadvertently feed these habits that will tilt you and your life toward chronic problems, anxieties, depressions, etc., unless you learn what you can do to starve your insecurity, then you really can't expect to liberate yourself from your struggle. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but you know, as with any habit, you need to learn how to take the right action to interrupt these patterns, these habit loops, and begin to retrain your brain. Now, I know that you know, this is just an introduction to self-coaching remedy for a struggling life, but it's a good introduction. And if you can understand the simplicity of just understanding who in me is talking at this moment, is it me? my healthy, mature thinking, or is it my insecurity? That differentiation puts you ultimately, ultimately in a place of choice. Now, maybe at first you can't say, well, I know it's the healthy thinking, but I just feel I can't. You know, you're, you're, you're still being tripped up by insecurity, of course. How many years did it take for you to develop the personality traits that you now possess years and you're not going to undo that by one attempt however you need to realize a that you need to start reducing stress and remember we talked about that about trying taking that leap of faith and becoming a bit more optimistic about things but you also have to do it by realizing that you don't want to just hand yourself over to insecurity the doubts the fears the negativity your passivity is killing your life. So we need action. You need to realize that to take action, you have to stop feeding. How do you feed? Again, with throwing crumbs of doubt, fear, and negativity. Yet you cannot allow yourself to drive down that road with insecurity steering, the doubt, fear, negativity road, and do nothing. That's feeding your habit of insecurity. How do you starve it? You pull yourself back. You catch yourself saying, I can't, I won't, it'll never happen, it's too hard. You catch yourself and you say, wait a second. At least begin by saying, what would my healthy reframing of that thinking be? I know I feel I can't do such and such, but what's the healthy response? And the healthy response is, well, when I say I can't, I'm, I'm cutting off all possibilities. How do I know I can't? So what I'm going to encourage you to do is to, A, B, 
beware of optimism, pessimism, and and be totally convinced that striving for optimism is really where you want to be. And that's a choice. That's a, a legitimate choice you make each and every day when you find yourself falling prey to insecurity. Choose optimism, or at least define optimism. Maybe you can't get there at first, but try. And why not? What would it kill you to say, hey, maybe it'll work out tomorrow, or hey, maybe I'll handle it. You see, the pessimist lacks self-trust. The optimist may lack self-trust, but they're willing to believe that they'll overcome. They'll find a way. And then trust starts to grow. And trust is a muscle. Self-trust is a muscle. If you allow insecurity and self-distrust to rule your life, well, you suffer. How do we build self-trust? Well, we stop feeding insecurity-driven thinking, and we start to risk putting ourselves out there with optimism. We stop anticipating things going awry and worrying and ruminating about all these horrible things. And we come in the present and we allow ourselves to feel that what comes around that corner, whatever it is, I'll handle it. You see, that's the kind of optimism that builds self-trust. Because what, what that does is it prepares you to not have to become neurotically involved with all the stress involved, with things going awry. When you have self-trust, you can afford to do that. You can afford to let go of all the terrible things that could happen. You can afford to let all that go because, simply because you trust that you'll handle it. See, it's, life becomes very simple with self-trust and very difficult without it. I'd like to mention that next week, I'm hoping to drag my daughter-in-law, Samira, into the self-coaching podcast studios. <laughs> Actually, she's going to be doing it from her beautiful remote home overlooking the Hudson. And Samira is going to be telling us her secret. And what her secret has to do with is how we can cultivate in our own lives more resilience a more tenacious attitude towards those things we'd like to achieve and how to just embrace self-confidence. She does this quite naturally, but I'm going to ask her to try to reveal the secrets behind her abilities. So hopefully that will happen next week and tune in. And I think you'll find it to be a very interesting podcast. Can't we all use more resilience, tenacity, and self-control? Uh, did I say self-control? <laughs> See that? I need more self-confidence. All right, next week, hopefully Samira. And with that, I'd like you to visit my website, selfcoaching.net, where you can learn more about my self-coaching philosophy. So until next time, remember that being victimized by emotional struggle, well, it's not an option. And by definition, victims are powerless. And you are not powerless. So remember, everything's hard until you make it simple. So join me every week. And how about we make it simple together? Believe in yourself. Reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender. There is more than it seems. Hold on and fight. Follow your heart.